0: has been director of the MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory and is the Panasonic Professor of Robotics at MIT. He is also the CTO of iRobot Corporation. Thank you for joining me, Mr. Brooks. Thank you. One of the things that you talk about that I think is pretty interesting is that when we think of the singularity, we typically want to think about it as a single point, but it doesn't have to be a single point, does it?
1: No, in fact, I think it's not going to be noticeable as it happens, and I am maybe a little uh, more skeptical of when it's going to happen than some of the people at the conference we're at. Uh, I think we'll look back, or we, whoever our descendants are, will look back and see the change, but it's going to be lots of things happening all at once, together, uh, disruptive this way, that way, and it's not going to be just a single event it's going to involve an influx of a lot of new technologies, isn't it? Well, there's new technologies and 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 new scientific understanding of intelligence and new technical implementations of intelligence. And by the way, I, I, I don't know that we're ever going to build anything that's just like what a lot of people imagine about the singularity. You know, we had a singularity in mankind's ability to fly, but it wasn't through strapping wings on ourselves and, and, and flapping. It was you know, using rotary engines and then eventually jet engines, and that's how we fly these days. And we've also had a singularity when we learned to write. We had a singularity. Well, again, and and the nice thing about the singularity when we learned to write, we can't point to one place that it happened or one instant that it happened. It it developed over time. First from marks to record numbers and ultimately from that came various forms of writing. When we create, try to create artificial
0: intelligences, we have some goal in mind. And Do you think that we'll actually achieve that goal or that our artificial intelligence could be much like our own children, who often turn out very differently from what we intend?
1: Well, you know, the last 50 years of artificial intelligence research has been very fruitful, and it's completely changed our worlds. All of us uh, today use artificial intelligence, have it involved in our lives every every hour of the day. Whenever we uh, use a Google search, we're using an artificial intelligence engine. Whenever we make a... uh, uh, an airplane reservation. Uh, we're using an artificial intelligence search engine which is finding the routes. Uh, if we happen to drive a BMW, then there's a neural network optimizing the fuel injection system a- as we drive along. We're surrounded by AI technology, but it's not what the AI uh, fathers, if they were all, all male, of 1956 thought we were going to get. They were interested in, in programs that could play chess or do calculus and that's what was intelligent to them but instead this intelligence is spread throughout our lives and as we
0: learned when deep blue beat kasparov even even that computer which too many people had passed the
1: mark of proving an artificial intelligence it wasn't that intelligent the the computer that deep blue that beat kasparov did it by brute force which is not how people play chess but nevertheless you know now uh, computers can routinely beat everybody in the, in the, on the planet. By the way, when Kasparov was beaten, you know, he, you know he was the best player in the world. Now he gets beaten by a program. He said, "Well, at least it didn't enjoy beating me." He, you know, he had his specialness that he still had emotions, but that computer didn't have emotions, and he was right. That one didn't. So we we're always trying to protect ourselves as being better than these machines.
0: Could you talk about your work with iRobot? One of the things that really interested me was an essay I read by Stanislaw Lem. He wrote it back in the 19, late 1970s. And he was talking about uh, the weapons programs of the 21st century, and his character had come across a book that had all the weapons programs that had been developed in the 21st century. And one of the things that Lem talked about was that after futilely trying to search and create artificial intelligence, the scientists eventually ab- of the future for him, gave up and decided to go after artificial instinct because artificial instinct instinct appeared much earlier in the evolutionary path and was pretty darn useful. And I think that's a lot what you've done with uh, your iRobot Roombas. Well,
1: my research program at MIT for the last uh, 25, 20, 20 some years has really been uh, inspired by biological systems and I've been looking at the evolutionary history of biological systems and trying to emulate the, the way things came online in evolution and certainly uh, insect-like uh, behavior uh, is much simpler than the intelligence that that the, the founders in, in 1956 thought about and so I built robots that could act like insects and now we have um, millions of those sorts of robots in people's homes.
0: One of the things that that interests me is the influence of science fiction on the development of technology. A lot of uh, scientists have said that they, and inventors have said that they're only trying to create a lot of the things they've read about in science fiction. I wonder if you care to comment on the effect that science fiction has on this particular conference here, which is based on the work of a science fiction writer, and and on
1: your work as well. Well, I've certainly been inspired by science fiction. I was inspired as a kid by uh, Asimov and by Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, particularly when the movie 2001 came out, that uh, I was living, I was a kid growing up in Australia in a very technologically isolated community, and and seeing that that movie, seeing that intelligent computer HAL 9000 was a real inspiration to me. You know, he did turn out to be a murdering psychopath. But nevertheless, it was still pretty damn impressive to me. Um, so I've been inspired by, by, by science fiction, and I think a lot of people at the Singularity Conference have been inspired, but I think perhaps they've gotten a little overboard worrying about, you know, the plot lines from from Hollywood uh, being the future. And, you know, Hollywood's good at telling stories, but it's not necessarily good at predicting the future. You know, if we believed everything that comes out of Hollywood, well, we'd be out on the streets fighting aliens all the time because there, that's where, they, you know, there's aliens around. I mean, you know, we'd be seeing ghosts. We don't. And likewise, I don't think we, we, we have to be too worried about the evil robots or evil computers taking over the world. Good Hollywood story for a movie but not hard, careful science fiction, I don't think. Could you talk about
0: uh, imagining the future, the difference between a futurist and a science fiction writer? You're a little bit of a futurist yourself so maybe you could explain to me why what a futurist does is not science fiction.
1: I think a a futurist tries to, to talk about what are plausible futures, whereas a science fiction writer, especially a Hollywood one, wants to get a good story, which has a good box office. Um, so uh, when I try and think about the future, I'm sure we can't predict it but uh, in any detail, but I, I look at what the trends are and what those trends say that, w- that will, will be forces on us and on our science and on our technology in the future, and then try to see what sort of things we should be thinking about as a, as a result of that.
0: Could you talk about what you think that the subjects discussed in this conference, artificial intelligence and, and the potential for it to be beneficial or not, do you think those are gonna have like real concrete effects on people like in the next five years?
1: I, I'm not sure that they're going to have concrete effects in the next five years. We can we can certainly say that certain exponentials are going to have concrete effects on people in the next five years. The amount of memory in an iPod—it's doubling every year. So you know, in in in. Uh, in a couple of years we'll be able to carry around a million books on our iPod and, and before very long uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of, of movies uh, on, a, on an iPod. That's going to have all sorts of impact on digital rights management, uh, uh, copyright, all sorts of things. So those things we can have a direct effect. Some of the things that have been talked about here about the artificial intelligence as an entity, as a being, uh, is very speculative. I mean, it's a, I'm not saying it's not, not possible, I think it is possible in principle. When we will get there is another question. And I think, frankly, some of the uh, speakers who are speaking here, talking about technologies, are very speculative about their technologies and are chosen for their wow factor rather than, I would say, their true technological credibility.
0: How do we determine what's credible and what's not? I, I th- Was it
1: you who gave us the Arthur C. Clarke quote? Arthur C. Clarke said that uh, people tend to uh, overestimate the uh, technologies in the short term and underestimate them in the long term. And I think we're probably seeing a little bit of uh, overestimation in the short term. And too much reliance on the Hollywood scenario uh, for the long term which focuses on just one or two ideas and there are so many plausible things that could happen that I think we're missing many of those plausible things. One of the things that I think is interesting about
0: artificial intelligence and the singularity is that it's it's a big idea and it's a, a, a important concept to humanity in many ways I think more important than space travel or at least as important as space travel. The way we approached space travel was as a, governments took, a, took the, the lead and it was viewed as a human endeavor. Uh, artificial intelligence is being viewed as strictly a commercial endeavor.
1: Well, artificial intelligence research in the United States has been largely funded by the DoD since the 1950s. Um, and still, there is continues to be a lot of support from the DoD. Um, it's gotten a little shorter term in its expectation of, of uh, payoff than it was. Uh, but nevertheless, the government has been very much involved, as, as the government is involved in a lot of technology research in the U.S., um, set up... Uh, Essentially, through the Buy dole Act, which lets universities maintain ownership of the IP produced, which then goes to startup companies, which then uh, gets pur- gets purchased by larger companies. So, uh, DoD becomes an engine of technology dr- uh, dr- en- engine of technology development for U.S. companies. U.S. companies like to think they're doing it all themselves, but they spend relatively little on research. They do spend money on development, but the research part has traditionally been funded by the U.S. government for the last 50 years, and that is what has driven the U.S. in technology. And we shouldn't forget that, as we uh, say, oh, industry will take care of it. Industry is not rewarded for spending money on research. They're only rewarded for spending money on development, and they act accordingly. Could you talk about some of the challenges of funding the kind of research that you're doing? I think over the last uh, two to three decades, people's expectations have become for shorter and shorter term payoff. So we get driven to doing short term things. And and when we see disparaging remarks about curiosity-driven research, it's not being—that's not what we should be funded. But curiosity-driven research is what has produced all the great advancements in mankind, um, in technology and in science. And so uh, it's very easy to take this hardcore position that, that you know no one should be paying for curiosity-driven research; it should all uh, be use-inspired. But uh, I think we need a mixture of the two, and uh, the pendulum can't swing too hard one way or the other. Uh, it, it, both of them have downsides. I think it's swung too hard towards uh, use-based research at the moment. When we talk about artificial intelligence these days, the, the,
0: I think the, the breadth and depth of what we're talking about has, has changed from, the, from what the founding fathers of AI in 56 first envisioned. Could you talk about how it has changed and why?
1: Back in 1956 when, when uh, a group of people got together at Dartmouth U- University in Hanover, New Hampshire to have a summer session on artificial intelligence, they were all bright young men and as they talked about intelligence, I think they got inspired about what made them more intelligent than the other people they knew. And what they were good at was solving puzzles and doing mathematics, and that seemed to be the essence of intelligence to them. You know, what a two-year-old child could do, which is you know, walk around, climb on things, recognize objects, name them, talk about them. Any, anyone could do that. That's not the essence of intelligence. So out of that 1956 then came, you know, playing chess, proving theorems. That was intelligence. But we've seen that that only gets you so far. And over the years, we've seen we really need to be able to do the things that any two-year-old can do. And it's really hard. It's much harder than playing chess. And uh, so that has changed what we've uh, come to worry about in artificial intelligence research.